Welcome to the Word Encounter, episode 191. We're in the book of Matthew, chapter 27. Let's get into this Word Encounter. Uh, in chapter 26, we see that Jesus has been taken to the Sanhedrin, and he has been deemed guilty, according to them. So he has been beaten. And so the next day, uh, in chapter 27, it says, After tying him up, they led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Uh, and it says, Jesus, uh, excuse me, Judas hangs himself. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was full of remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the uh, chief priests and elders. Judas says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now listen to the response of the, the chief priests. They say, what's that to us? <laughs> we don't care. See to it yourself. They're saying, Look, that's on you. You know, you do what you have to do. We did what we had to do. And so it says in verse 5, So Judas threw the silver into the temple and departed. Then he went and hanged himself. So his guilt and remorse was so deep and so heavy after realizing that he had betrayed not only an innocent man, but the Son of God himself. He couldn't deal with with the blowback from that. And so he threw the money away as he realized that this money is nothing in comparison to what I've done, and he hung himself. The chief priest took the silver and said, now listen to this, it's not permitted to put it into the temple treasury since it is blood money. And so they're saying, look, the money we paid this dude was dirty money, but we paid it to him. We know it was dirty money. We're supposed to be the representatives of of truth, justice, and righteousness. But we paid this guy blood money to do our dirty work. And so, so we, we can't take this and put it in the temple. And says, so they conferred together and bought a potter's field with it as a burial place for foreigners. It says in verse 9, then what was spoken through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah was fulfilled. And see, they don't, they don't even realize that they're fulfilling scripture. See, they don't even realize that what they're doing and what they're about to do you know, was told by Jeremiah long hundreds of years hundreds of years previously with regard uh, to uh, to the prophetic word it says they took the 30 pieces of silver uh, the price of him whose price was set by the Israelites and they gave them for a potter's field as the Lord directed me and so Jeremiah wrote I think Zechariah, uh, Zechariah also wrote about this uh, in their books in the Old Testament in the Old Testament and so this is being fulfilled. People are fulfilling test. Uh, excuse me. People are fulfilling prophecy, and they don't even know it. Jesus faces the governor. Now Jesus stood before the governor. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. Jesus answered, "You say so." In <laughs> this this whole thing, Jesus is a man of very is either uh, silent or a man of very few words. Because a lot of times when our innocence and other things is obvious, we don't have to say anything. You know, we get into our feelings and we get into our humanity and we want to defend ourselves and use uh, all kind of indignation and words and, and shouting and cussing at people. And Jesus isn't doing that. He's given us an example with how to handle ourselves when we're innocent. Verse 12, while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he didn't answer. Then Pilate said to him, don't you hear how much they are testifying against you? But he didn't answer him on even one charge so that the governor was quite amazed. 
See, he didn't answer Pilate. And Pilate, because he didn't answer, the Pilate didn't assume he was guilty. Pilate was amazed because Pilate knew that these accusations were false. But he was amazed that Jesus wasn't behaving in a manner consistent with, with how other people would behave. He was just silent. Jesus or Barabbas. At the festival, the governor's custom, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner that they wanted. So Bar- uh, Barabbas was a rabble rouser. He, was, he led some insurrections and he was a violent man. And in verse 17 it says, So when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who is it you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus? Who is called the Christ? So he's speaking to the crowd. He's a- answering, asking the crowd, Who do you want me to release? While he was sitting on the judge's bench, his wife sent word to him. <laughs> his wife says to him, to Pilate, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. No, she says, have nothing to do with that righteous man. She knew, Pilate also knew, but she knew that this man was guilty of nothing but righteousness. And so she's telling her husband, have nothing to do with this man. Don't do this. The chief priests and the elders, however, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to execute Jesus. The governor asked him, which of the two do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, they shouted. Pilate asked him, what should I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all answered, crucify him, crucify them. Uh, uh, then he said, why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting all the more, crucify him. Now, if you've ever been in a crowd, and if that crowd has ever been worked up and stirred up, you know, emotionally and whatnot, the crowd takes on its own life. It's its own organism. You have all of these people that make up this crowd, but nobody is really controlling the crowd. The crowd is an entity uh, on itself. And if you've ever been in that situation, be careful. Be careful. Because you may do and say things that you would never do or say if you were by yourself. It's only because of this mechanism that works in a crowd of people that makes people do crazy things, you see? And this is what the crowd was doing. They're not even thinking. They're just shouting, they want blood. Why do you want blood? I don't know, they've just been whipped up into a a frenzy. In verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, again, because this frenzy was in place and this crowd was just going crazy, crucify him, kill him, crucify him. But that the riot, but that a riot was starting instead See, <laughs> and that's what can happen in crowds. People get caught up in stuff and start doing stuff. And then, you know, after the fact, later on, they're like, it's like they were in a trance. It's like, what did I do? Why? What? Huh? Be careful if you're in that situation. He took some water, washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. So Pilate is trying to wash his hands of this wrongdoing, but he's the one that's in control. See, he can, he, can, he can allow them to do what they want to do or not. So by washing his hands with water, he's essentially trying to alleviate himself of the, guilt, of the guilt, but he's the one that has the power. It says in verse 25, all the people answered, listen to this, his blood be on us and on our children. And so they are shouting out curses on themselves. <laughs> That's how whipped up they are. That's how non-thinking they're behaving. 
His blood be on us and on our children. Then Pilate released Barabbas to them after having Jesus flogged. You see, so Pilate isn't innocent in this. See, why did Pilate have Jesus flogged? If Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, which he did, and if Pilate knew that Jesus was a righteous man, which he did, why did he have Jesus flogged? And after he had him flogged, he handed him over uh, to the crowd to be crucified. So Pilate, no, you were not innocent. You tried to wash your hands from guilt, but no. Mocked by the military, verse 27. Then the uh, governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence and gathered the whole company around him. They stripped, it, they stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. Uh, they twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and placed a staff in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. Then they spat on him, took the staff, and kept hitting him on the head. They did a number on Jesus. You know, the scriptural, the, the verses here don't, I believe, depict what really happened to Jesus as far as the brutality of this beating. This is the beating prior to the crucifixion. <clears throat> Crucified between two criminals. The word says in verse 32, as they were going out, they found uh, a Cyrenian man named Simon. Now, Cyrene, I think, is somewhere in or around what is today Libya, uh, northern Africa. Um, he was a black man, and his name was Simon. And they found him, and they forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Then they came to a place called uh, Golgotha, meaning place of the skull. And in verse 34, uh, the word says that they gave, him, uh, they gave him wine mixed with gall to drink, but when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. So what's happening here? So we see that he's going to be crucified. And so they want to give him uh, this mixture that's essentially a painkiller you know, or a pain duller, to dull the pain of the crucifixion. And so Jesus started to take it, but then when he tasted it, he realized what it was, and he refused to drink it. Why? Well, first of all, remember in the Last Supper, he told the disciples that, you know, I'm not going to drink wine again until we drink it in the presence of my Father, essentially. And so, you know, that's, that's just a little side note. But the, the main thing is that I believe that Jesus did not want his senses to be dulled. He wanted to fully experience everything that was going to happen to him physically. He wanted to take on the full brunt of the weight of the sins of the world. He felt that he had to feel all of the pain that came along with the crucifixion. And so he refused the painkiller. Above his head, they put the charge up against him uh, in writing, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And so they put a, you know, a sign up that mocked him. So he under, underwent physical pain and abuse and also uh, 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 mental uh, pain and abuse, mocking, you know, <laughs> unbelievable. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their head and saying, 
you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him and said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. See, Jesus, Jesus, remember, Jesus had been going throughout the territories, all over the land, healing people, performing miracles, doing wondrous things, all these things that nobody could explain. See, and they didn't believe him after that. Now they're saying, "Okay, come down off the cross, then we'll believe in you. They had no intention of believing in him. He was a threat to their power and authority. They had to get rid of him. Verse 43. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he takes pleasure in him, you know, if God, if God takes pleasure of you, if you're the son of God, have God rescue you now. You know, for he claimed I am the son of God, you know, so, so they're, they're, they're just mocking him. The death of Jesus, verse 45, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? So Jesus is in anguish. It's kind of a rhetorical question because he knows what the deal is. He knows that he is executing his mission. He knows this. But I believe out of his emotions, it's like, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Immediately, uh, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a stick and offered it to him to drink. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. So we see here that at the last moment, somebody tried to offer him more painkiller, you know, but Jesus didn't take it. He cried out again with a loud voice. I don't know what he cried out. The word doesn't say. And he gave up his spirit. He died. Verse 51. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn from uh, torn into from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. Let's talk about this. In the temple, you had a curtain on the very inside of the temple. Uh, it separated the Holy of Holies. In other words, the holiest place of the temple was separated from the rest of the temple. So you had the Holy of Holies, you had the holy place, you had the outer court, you had these various parts of the temple. In the Holy of Holy, in the Holy of Holies that was sectioned off by this curtain, it's a tall curtain, sectioned off, only the high priest could go in there once a year, once a year, to make atonement for the people. And when he would go in there, uh, my understanding is that they would have a rope tied around his ankle in case he died in the presence of God, they could pull him out from behind the curtain without having to go in exposing themselves to God and thereby maybe exposing themselves to death. And so they could pull him out and retrieve him from the Holy of Holies. And so again, this curtain is what cordoned off this section. And so when Jesus died, what happened is this curtain split was rent, the word says, from top to bottom, open. See, it says suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. And so what this signifies is that when Jesus died, that was the end of the um, of the uh, of the sacrifice, the sacrificial or I should say the animal sacrificial system. And so what that means is that when this curtain was open, 
Now, not just one high priest once a year could approach God, but through Jesus, the eternal sacrifice, anybody could approach God. So this is this, this, this curtain being ripped was symbolic of the door opening so that anybody through Jesus could directly approach God. Nobody had to now go through priests or high priests, make atonement via animal blood and sacrifice in order to uh, have their sins uh, uh, abolished, if you will. And so now there, there's a new system in place. There's a new covenant in place. The new system in place is that acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. Acknowledge that through him and only him is the way to eternal life. Then you too can approach God directly. There's no need for this curtain anymore. See? And so that's the, uh, the symbolism with regard to this curtain being ripped from top to bottom. In verse 52, the tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, many bodies of the saints who had died, were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection. He hasn't resurrected yet. Uh, entered the holy city and appeared to many. So this had to be interesting. Apparently, many dead people uh, were raised from their graves uh, from their graves, and went into the holy city, went into Jerusalem, and were walking around, and people saw them. When the centurion and those with them who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, truly this man was the son of God. The burial of Jesus. When it was evening, a rich man from uh, Arimathea named Joseph came, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. Now, I believe Joseph was a Pharisee, I believe. And so there were some secret followers, disciples of Jesus, that were in the ranks of those who were behind persecuting him and crucifying him. So he appeared to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Then Pilate ordered it to be released. So Joseph uh, took the body, wrapped it uh, in clean, fine linen, and placed it in his new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. He left, uh, he left after, excuse me, he left after rolling a great stone against the entrance of the tomb. So Joseph takes Jesus' body, puts it in new clothing, you know, puts him inside the tomb. He cut a whole lot, I guess, in the rock, took a big stone, a big rock, and rolled it over the entrance. <clears throat> the closely guarded tomb. The next day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that while this deceiver was still alive, he said, After three days I will rise again. So give orders that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come, steal him, and tell the people he has been risen from the dead. And this is what many people believe today really happened. That, this, that the disciples came, took the body, and said he has risen. Uh, he uh, that he had, was raised from the dead, even though he wasn't. They just took the body in order to make it seem like he was. And the last deception will be worse than the first. <laughs> Take the guards, Pilate told him. Go and make it as secure as you know how. They went and secured the tomb by setting a seal on the stone and placing the guards. And so they put a seal. Uh, on the tomb, and they stationed guards around the uh, entrance of the tomb to make sure that the tomb was secure. Let's go on to chapter 28. It says, Resurrection Morning. 
says there was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. So this is a violent earthquake, right? And that's all because this angel is descending from heaven. And this is being witness. It says this angel rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was uh, as white as snow. The, guy, the guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. The angel told the women, there were Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, you know, they were in this presence because they were watching over the tomb. It says, the angel told the women, don't be afraid because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. Uh, you will see him there. Listen, I have told you so. So he's giving the women their marching orders, you know, to go tell everybody that Jesus is coming. He's going to meet you in Galilee. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell the disciples the news. Just then Jesus met them and said, greetings. They came up, took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus told them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. Note what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say, go and tell my disciples. Jesus didn't say, go and tell my followers. Jesus said, go and tell my brothers to live, to leave for Galilee. My brothers. He had been rabbi before, their teacher. Now he's saying, go and tell my brothers. The soldiers bribed to lie. As they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders and agreed on the plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told them, say this, his disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. Now note, if something had happened to something, uh, if, if something had happened to people or property or whatever that soldiers were guarding in that day, they were subject to being executed because it was their job to guard things. And so the notion that the guards fell asleep knowing what the potential punishment would be is not believable. So they're making up this story. They took the money and did as they were instructed, and his story has been spread among the Jewish uh, people to this day. Now, to this day, this is being written about 50, 60, or 70 A.D. You know, after Jesus dies, this is being written, you know, 50 or 60 or 70 years later. And so I believe what this is referring to is to this day as far as at that time, but I also believe that to this day refers to today, that this is what uh, the belief is amongst Jewish people, that Jesus did not rise from the dead, that he was stolen out of his tomb by his disciples. The Great Commission, verse 16, it says, The eleven disciples traveled to leave Galilee uh, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. In the other Gospels that we'll get to, this uh, gets elaborated on in more detail. In Matthew, it, it doesn't get elaborated on. Verse 18, Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He then says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He didn't say make converts of some people. He says, make disciples of all nations. What is a disciple and how do you make a disciple? A disciple is one who follows 
uh, one who is uh, teaching him or, or, or is preceding him or whatever and does what he does, patterns his lifestyle after, after that person, whatever. That's a disciple. And so how does one make a disciple? Through two E's, education and uh, example. And so uh, people are to go forth and teach other people on the things of God, to teach other people on the ways of Jesus, to teach other people the wisdom of Jesus, the wisdom of God. See, we, we, we don't want blind faith, you know. We want people to know why they believe what they believe, to be able to explain it, to be able to have other people understand it. See, so we have to be uh, intelligent in our dialogue with people. And so they need to be educated. And then example, the education needs to be uh, undergirded by the example of one's lifestyle. One's lifestyle should match up with what one is teaching. See, one's lifestyle should match up with what the Word of God says. So that there's no hypocrisy involved here. You know, <clears throat> I am... Uh, uh, behaving in accordance with what I'm teaching. Why? Because this is what I believe. You know, you're not going to find any, any uh, disparities between what I'm teaching and how I live. That's, that's how we are to be. We aren't to teach or preach one thing and live something else. That's hypocrisy. That's lying to people. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, this is Jesus's last word. See, if you're a parent and you're about to go out on a date with your spouse and you have small children, the last thing you tell them is the thing that you really want them to remember. Don't forget this. Jesus says, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is telling his disciples, his brothers, and remember, I am always with you. You are never without me. Regardless of what situation or circumstance you may be experiencing, you are never without me. I am always with you to the end of time. Always. And in fact, we'll find out that he is going to also send a comforter. But anyway, with that, we have completed the book of Matthew. We will pick up in Mark tomorrow. And, you know, I, I hope that as, as we have been going through and, and hearing what Jesus is, is saying and teaching and preaching and exampling and imparting, that his invitation will become increasingly enticing. His invitation to join him in the kingdom of heaven, his invitation as issued through Paul, when Paul spoke in Romans 10, the message is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. See, this is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth and if you sincerely believe in your heart, that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. All it takes is a sincere belief and a confession that yes, God did raise Jesus from the dead, 
that no, he was not stolen out of his tomb by his disciples, that he was in fact raised from the dead. The word says that you will be saved. That's what the word says. That's not what I say. I say I 100% totally and completely believe it. With that, we are done for the day. Everybody take care. Stay safe, be blessed, and keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.